Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. And we work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, businesses and social democratic parties across the globe to develop campaign strategies, train engagement staff in leadership and power building and help you execute your campaign with data-driven tactics and actions. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also proudly brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you an enthusiastic client-focused lawyer? Morris Blackburn Lawyers are hiring a lawyer, associate or senior associate with experience in personal injuries to join their team in Townsville, Queensland. They offer a safe, supportive and collaborative environment backed by inclusive leaders and progressive policies and you'll manage your own file load with heaps and heaps of support. So are you ready to join them on a journey to extend access to justice for more Australians? If so, apply now at morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Morris Blackburn experience you can count on. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast, which is out every Friday, allegedly, uh, that dives into the progressive campaigns and issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And abroad we are right now. We are in uh, New York in the United States at the moment. We've just finished our week uh, Dunn Street United States Engagement Mission, where we took a group of uh, Australians and one Irishman uh, over to Washington, D.C. and New York, where we met with a whole bunch of uh, folks from um, from the progressive side of politics, both in uh, labour organising, uh, racial justice, um, public policy, uh, government uh, campaigns, you know, we met with them all. Um, and that program has just finished up and uh, we're over here still for a couple more weeks. Um, so sorry, we didn't get an episode up last week just because we had the mission on and it was still, I can't do two things at once. I'm, I'm a man. Uh, but, uh, and this episode is a little bit late going up because it's Friday Friday here in uh, in New York, but obviously it's, uh, we're recording this and you're all asleep in Australia. Um, so this will get up on Saturday. So apologies for that, but we'll, the normal programming should resume now, even whilst I'm overseas. We're going to be doing a bunch of interviews with some folks over here in the U.S., uh, for the next couple of weeks, which I think will be interesting just hearing some some things that's going on here politically um, in the United States as they get ready for the midterms, which is up in uh, the first Tuesday in November. Um, so today's episode actually is a special one because we're going to be speaking to uh, Terry Zuplatt, who was a speechwriter for Obama um, during the Obama administration from 2008 right through to the end of uh, 2012. And uh, Terry's going to talk a bit about his experience and um, um time spending uh, writing speeches for Obama, which I think is, you know, pretty cool. Um, don't forget to uh, follow the show uh, on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And when you're done listening to the episode, give us five stars, please. And and for all the last updates, follow Dunn Street on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Friday afternoon in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, sorry, we're getting this one to you guys in Australia a little bit late. Um, it's been a bit of a crazy week. Uh, but uh, good things come to those who wait because uh, we are joined by a special guest today, someone who was a part of the Dunn Street uh, US engagement mission uh, last week in Washington, D.C. He's the founder of 
Global Voices Communications, and he's helping leaders in politics, business, and civil society and, and, and entertainment to tell their story and inspire audiences around the world. And that included writing uh, speeches for a bloke that some of us might know as uh, President Barack Obama for nearly eight years. Uh, Terry Zublat, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thanks. It's great to be here. Great to see you again. And absolutely. Um, so uh, lots to talk about today. Uh, but before we talk about some of the contemporary work that you did, uh, what's your back, What's your backstory? We're going to talk about people's stories, but what's your backstory? How did uh, where, where did you grow up? What was your what was your childhood like? Sure. So, uh, so I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, my father is a uh, Ukrainian immigrant uh, plumber. Uh, my mother was a uh, lunch lady at my high school cafeteria, and we were very much uh, have a working class background. Um, I grew up on Cape Cod, which uh, has uh, all sorts of associations with it, the Kennedy Mystique. But, you know, there's a, there's um, not everybody uh, lives in a mansion and has a boat. And so a lot of us grew up in a, in a working class background with a, in a, in a poor, you know, poor neighborhoods. Um, and I never imagined in my wildest dreams that I'd someday end up uh, working in the White House, in the Oval Office, flying on Air Force One around the world, places, including places like Australia. And so uh, it's a really amazing journey to go from, from, from where I started to where I ended up. When you think back uh, on your, your childhood or those sort of formative uh, moments uh, as, a, as a teenager, could you place uh, a moment or a time where you started to take an interest in, in politics or government or public life or civics? What was... Yeah. So um, I think part of it came from the fact that uh, I grew up uh, in a town, a few towns over from a Hyannis port where the Kennedys have their family compound. And so um, particularly in the summers, uh, the Kennedys were just everywhere all the time. It was just this, this presence um, that reminded me of sort of uh, the good things about what politics can be. And when I was a kid, I think uh, my mother must have sensed that I was developing an interest in the world and politics. And she gave me a record, uh, a true record, an album <laughs> before this is before cassettes, before everything, before CDs, before everything else. And it was an album of speeches by president Kennedy. And I was, I was a kid. I was, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 years old. And so the other kids were outside <laughs> playing, playing sports. And I was inside listening to speeches by John F. Kennedy. And I think as I've thought back on that experience, you know, it was a record. So I, I couldn't, I couldn't see him speaking. I couldn't watch a video. I was listening uh, and really focusing on the words and the rhythm of his language and the cadence and uh, really sparked something in me. Um, I thought this was, you know, I, I, I didn't yet have it in my head that I might someday become a speechwriter, but I was drawn to the idea that a leader could, could, could reach people and touch people and connect with people with nothing but words um, and so there I was in my room as a kid in, in a few towns over from, from Hyannisport listening to these words and these speeches and slowly starting to understand that, that with the right words and the right way, you can actually, uh, you, you can really reach people. What, um, 
struck you most about the, the speeches of John F. Kennedy that uh, you, you think that possibly influences the way that you craft speeches today or something that you wanted to replicate? Or, mm-hmm. Well, you know, again, listening to them like a record and, you know, in a way I was, they were poems. They were, they were, uh, it was music. Uh, yeah, they were, they were speeches and, and they, they, they were about policies and programs and, and, you know, issues foreign and domestic. But really what I was drawn to was just the melodic nature of the language, the rhythm, um, the sound, the sound of the words. Um, because when, again, when you're listening, this is something I did ultimately when I became a speechwriter for President Obama, where I, had, I hadn't been on the campaign. I, I joined him in the first months of his administration. So I had to learn his voice and I had to learn his rhythms and his cadence and his language. And everybody has their own, all of us do. Um, so I would kind of revert back to like I was when I was a kid in my room growing up. I'd, I'd, I'd turn on a speech on the computer, but I'd turn the screen off, put my headphones on because I just wanted to listen. I didn't want to be distracted by his hand gestures or his, his body language or the audience uh, react, reaction, people standing behind him. I just wanted to hear the words. I wanted to hear how they flowed. Um, and I think as speechwriters, whether you're writing for yourself and giving a speech or you're writing for someone else, that's something that you really have to be attuned to is, is the voice, uh, your own voice, the voice of the person you're writing for. Um, it's actually, you stole a question I was going to ask you later on. It was about you had to write for someone uh, someone else. Sure. I mean, it must be incredibly difficult, right? I mean, and particularly Obama as well. He has, I mean, everyone has a style, obviously. But, you know, um, trying to then get yourself in their head and craft a speech for them must be incredibly difficult. Yeah. You know, and you know, it's hard enough for all, you know, I think anyone who's ever tried to give a speech or write their own speech, it's that, that alone is hard. You know, it's hard. There's all sorts of insecurities and self doubt that come into that. And, and it's hard. And, and, and you question, you question yourself. It's doubly hard when you're writing for someone else because you're actually writing it twice, at least twice. The first thought that come into your mind is, well, what, what should be said here? What could be said? What makes sense to me? But then you have to stop and ask yourself, would the person I'm writing for actually say it this way? Mm. And um, every one of us would say it differently. There's, you know, there's a hundred different ways to give a speech and there's a, you know, every person would give it slightly differently. So as a speechwriter, you're always stopping yourself and asking, you know, am I writing this the way that I would say it or am I writing it the way my boss would say it? And again, that's part, um, you know, mimicry. Uh, that's, that's a, that's a, ver- that's a s- kind of script writing. I, I mean, I've never written a TV show, but I suspect that when, you know, people write scripts for a TV show or a movie for a character, they're always asking, you know, would this character say it this way? And that's what we do in speech writing, you know, would, uh, and there were many, many times when we'd be in, you know, editing each other, going over drafts and, and say to each other, you know, this, this is the right point, but I just don't see him saying it this way. This is not how he talks. This is not how he approaches problems this way. So, so yeah, speech writing is, is like writing everything twice, <laughs> at least twice. How did you, how did you come to actually be um, in the, in the orbit of President Obama? How did you look at I me? Mean, how do you get a job for the president of the United States? Sure. Well, by, uh, by 2000, uh, late 2008, uh, in the end of the campaign, I'd been a speechwriter for just a little over a decade. I, I'd been an intern at the White House speechwriting office in college uh, on, when President Clinton was there. I, I was actually assigned to the foreign policy speechwriters. 
And so I thought that was a pretty cool, pretty cool job to have. And maybe someday I could come back and actually do it myself. Uh, my first speech writing job was for the Secretary of Defense. I was about 23 years old. I had never served in the military, never served in the Pentagon, never, never worked in the Defense Department at all. But, but I was young, and I think I was some, I was cheap labor, and they needed some help. And they trained, you know, they sort of disabused me of all my, my writing habits that I had been taught in high school and college, and and, and turned me into a speechwriter. And the speechwriting world is a pretty small one, um, I think, globally, uh, but also especially in, in D.C. And I had gotten to know, I had volunteered a little bit on the Obama campaign in 2008. Gotten, I was at the convention, got to know his speechwriters. And when he won, it was time for them to, to build out their team. And they invited me to, to apply. Um, and they, gave, they, <laughs> they did to me what I had always done to other people. They gave me a writing test. And uh, so here you are, you know, the, the job of a lifetime. And uh, it, everything you've been working towards and hoping for for years, and it comes down to uh, comes down to a writing test, and they give you about a week to do it. And uh, it was it was one of the di- most difficult weeks of my life because I, I really wanted uh, I really wanted to nail it. I really wanted them to to want me on board, and uh, it worked out. And so I started uh, I started a few, few months into the administration in about May 2009, and I was there uh, to the very end, January 2017. Unpack that week for me in uh, preparing to do that writing test. Like, where do you, what do you do? Like, how do you how do you train for that? What do you what, what sort of research? I'm assuming you must be on uh, on YouTube, just scrolling through a lot of his um, campaign speeches. And sure. So you know, you have a week, and you know, I think one of the things I've always encouraged people to do is to be smart about how you use your time. Whether you have to write a speech in a day, a week, a month, whatever. But you know, be be strategic in how you use your time and. Don't spend, you know, do a lot of research, but don't do too much, you know, um, write, but don't start right away. Uh, don't start too late. Leave enough time for editing, you know. So in a typical week like that, I'd spend, you know, again, seven days. So maybe I'm spending three days or so just absolute gangbusters research, reading everything I could that he said uh, on the topic. And it was a, it was a, you know, it was a fictitious scenario. The idea was he would travel he would give a speech the night before he went to the Middle East for a uh, diplomatic breakthrough between Israelis and Palestinians. So I read everything he had ever said in the Middle East, everything he had ever said on Israel. And he had traveled to Israel, so I made that a part of the speech. He had traveled to the to um, Palestinian territories. Uh, I wanted you know his stories. I want to make it as personal as I could. So again, you know, so it would be in his voice from his perspective. And then spent about you know two or three days writing and a day or two editing and, uh, finally, <laughs> finally let it go. But yeah, it's a, it's, I, I think I, I always say to people again, in that week, what I just said was what, you know, two or three days, maybe even four days of research. I really do think that people usually start their speeches too early. They, they rush in. I think it's understandable. There's panic, there's anxiety. I, I need to start writing something right away. The sooner I have something down, the better it'll be for me or for my boss. And I just don't think that's the case. I think you really need to use your time to think through calmly, you know, what is this speech about? You know, what am I trying to achieve? Uh, and and really build out your notes so that by the time you write, um, it's actually much easier. You know, by the before I ever write a word, I might have 80, 100 pages of notes uh, roughly organized around. And if I come across an amazing story, I'm going to plug that in. Maybe that's the end. Save your best for last, you know, uh, plug that in. And when, once you see it all, once you see your, 
you know, almost like, you know, dots on a screen, you, it, it starts to become clear what the best ones are, what the, what the nuggets are, what the diamonds are and how you can string them together in a way that's truly unique and beautiful. And so that, that's how I approach it. You know, a lot of the thinking, I just think that a lot of the work that goes into making a great speech occurs before you ever write a single word. And that was true with Obama too. He, he you know, people, a lot's been written about his 2004 speech where he kind of burst on the national stage. He didn't just come up with that in a few days. That was something he'd been thinking about for years. He worked on it for weeks. I wasn't with him at the time, but but he's spoken about this. And um, yeah, maybe you know, less time, uh, less time speaking, more time thinking. <laughs> you know, open open your mind before you open your mouth. One thing that s- strikes me about um, the speeches by President Obama, um, and it, not just campaign speeches. I mean, obviously. I probably lean into and pay more attention to the campaign speeches because of my background and the work that I do. But even when he's um, talking about uh, domestic politics uh, or policies, um, he does incorporate stories into his speech more so than I think most politicians do. Um, and in my work, I'm always encouraging. I don't. I don't. I'm not a speechwriter, but I'm when politicians are considering giving a speech i'm saying you need to, i want you to incorporate stories moments from your life into the speech and there's a reluctance to do that uh, when right. you wrote for obama is that something that you picked up straight away is that something that they that the speech writing team and obama said we need to get my stories in or, or stories of others into these speeches all the time or uh, what's the process there was that deliberate or 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 it just happened or happenstance well i think with obama the you know, he was a writer before he was a politician, right? He had written his his memoir, you know, before he ever ran for public office. And actually one of the, you know, this is something that a process that he went through early in his career where uh, he'd get up and give speeches about issues. And his advisors encouraged him to give speeches uh, with more stories, it was something that he had to learn. By the time, you know, 2004 comes around, I mean, I personally believe that you know, he pretty much had his voice and and his his style of rhetoric in, largely intact by the time 2004 comes along. I mean, you watch that speech in 2004 and then you listen to his farewell address in January 2017. You know, we, we're always very proud of the fact that you could, you could um, put speeches like that side by side and they were thematically consistent, rhetorically consistent. So, you know, by the time I joined, there was already a great appreciation. You know, we didn't have to convince Obama. If anything, it was Obama who was making sure that we were um, telling stories. And and I, I think for your listeners, you know, I think people often don't quite get it. And I and I I, I want to be careful how I say it. You know, there's there's I think people understand the value of a story. Um, you, we all know we could tell a story. If you're giving a speech about the economy, you, you could choose to tell the story of a real family you met in their real life and what they go through to make it real. That's, that's one kind of storytelling, you know, example, uh, stories that illustrate what your speech. But the, another way to look at it and the way we all looked at it was that the speech itself is a story. Um, when, if you think of a, you know, we, if you think of a speech as something that, like any good story needs to have a narrative arc. It needs to bring the reader along. 
it needs to pull them in. It needs to grab them at the beginning. It needs to hold them and sustain them through the middle. You've got to deliver something powerful at the end. I mean, I think we all know that from watching movies and, and, and plays and books, but it's really uh, great speeches do that as well. And I think if you, you know, we all have our favorite speeches or speeches that we think are, you know, notable, you know, go back and listen to them, to them from the standpoint of storytelling and structure and narrative. And you'll see that, I mean, again, Obama's 04 speech um, is, a, is a great example of that, where he introduces himself he, and, and kind of takes you on a journey. So I think that's what great speeches do. And, and uh, one, one of the things that great speeches need to do, There's, there are, of course, many things that a really good speech needs to do. One thing that uh, Marshall Gantz talks about, um, you, you need to tell your story because if you don't tell your story, particularly in a political campaign, someone else, someone else will do it for you and sometimes not in a good light. And he always uses the example of John Kerry who didn't want to talk about the fact that he was a veteran and won about t- you know 60,000 Purple Hearts and you know all that kind of stuff. And then what happened, we had the Swift Boat guys come out and actually kind of reframe uh, this, mm-hmm. this story in a negative way. Um, how did you, and I see this in Australia a lot, a lot of people seeking public office or are in public office don't want to tell their own story. And I think it, it comes from a point where they don't want to seem to be vulnerable, whereas I think that's a strength. Oh, yeah, What's absolutely. your thoughts on that? So you have to ask, I, I always encourage people to think, as, to just before, like before we talk about the speech, what you're going to say, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you choosing to put yourself forward either as a candidate or why are you choosing to speak on this at this particular occasion? And anybody can give a speech on anything, but why should someone listen to you? Um, this is something that we see in the newspapers a lot, right? We, the op-ed, we have the op-ed pages. Um, why should anyone care or give a damn about what you have to say about anything? Why should we listen to you for 5, 10, 15, 30 minutes? And the only reason we should listen to you is because you have something unique to say. You have something, a unique story, a unique background, some credibility, something that gives you a point of view that is valuable that we haven't heard a thousand times before. Um, if all you're going to get up and, you know, people say, I'm going to get the clients I work with, oh, I'm going to give a speech on the economy. And I said, that sounds awful. That sounds really boring. Um, or I'm going to give a speech on poverty or inequality. Um, my one of the first questions I was, well, let's talk about you and this issue. What's your connection to this? What do you bring to this that no one else can bring? Because if 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 you're just going to go stand up and essentially give a policy report that sounds like something that you could have written in a white paper, you have no business giving that speech. And so uh, you know, it's point of view. That's what makes a speech interesting. That's what makes a speech relevant. And I mean, you think about it, you're asking people to take time out of their busy day, their lives to come to your event, come to your meeting, join your organization, vote for you, donate to you, whatever whatever it is that that the ask is, uh, you better be offering something unique because they have a lot of different organizations to support. They can give their money to any other charity uh, why should they support you? Why should they engage with you? Why, why should they care? And if you can't make it personal, um, then you're missing a huge opportunity. People, people respond to stories. Uh, people, um, that's, that's what, that's how people, um, 
are drawn into a cause. So, you know, there's all sorts of examples that, and, I, and one of the things that I encourage people to do is pay attention to the speeches that go viral every once in a while. You know, every few weeks, few months, we see something, somebody's speech catches fire. And you have to ask yourself, why is that? It's almost always because this person brought something unique and personal to the topic. They were personally affected in some way by this. Um, and sure, it's, it's, you know, it's someone who survived a school shooting here in the United States. Um, someone who, you know, uh, a young person speaking up at their city council, uh, demanding that they take action on guns. These are the things that break through because that's what we respond to as human beings. We, we, we connect with people on a human level, stories. And so it's, I get it. It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. You know, a lot of politicians in particular, like, oh, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I don't want it to be about me. And, and you can overdo it. You have to be smart about how you do it. It cannot be just, you know, it can't just be me, me, me. But, but you have to, I think the best speeches are ones where someone, um, you know, opens up, shares a bit about their background, their story. I mean, it's the first question you asked me, right? You know, I'm not just this, you know, we all have our stories. We all have our background. No one, no one has our story. No one has. And it's actually a, it's a form of power because, um, you know, you could ask 10 people to give a speech on climate change. And if they all give the same speech, <laughs> then those aren't very good speeches. But if you have some personal connection to the issue, you know, again, I'm trying, just off the top of my head, I grew up on Cape Cod. I grew up by the ocean. I don't know if, my, if parts of my town are going to be there you know, when I, when I grow old. I don't know if parts of my town are going to be there for my kids uh, to experience the way I did. So that's, that's something very personal to me. Um, it's not some distant issue, but yeah, I, it's, uh, you've really got to, uh, you know, we always tell people to give the speech that only you can give. And part of that, a huge part of that is understanding your story and how it fits in. Again, go back to that Obama 2004 speech. He starts by introducing himself, telling his story because nobody knew who he was. He, and, and we have so, we had so many examples of that throughout the administration, uh, throughout the eight years that we were there where, we always would incorporate his story, particularly overseas. You know, we would always look for ways for him to, to, to open up and to share and to tell the story that only he could tell. And it always, it was always a way of um, connecting with people. People respond to that. Which I love, and correct me if I'm wrong, because primarily, certainly in the early days of the administration, your work was mostly focused on writing speeches for Obama when he was traveling or sec matters of security. Is that, is, that, is that right, Terry? Yeah. So I, w I was one of sort of two dedicated foreign policy speechwriters for the whole eight years. And for the first term, the first four years, that was almost my exclusive focus for, you know, 99% of what I did. In the second term, I became the deputy director of the, of the whole office. So I, in addition to doing the foreign policy work, I also helped our chief speechwriter, Cody Keenan, um, kind of oversee and edit, uh, edit the team, um, which was just a remarkable team of writers. So, so yeah, I did both, but, but disproportionately foreign affairs and that went to over 40 countries with him. And so you see the thing that, that really always struck me was that the, um, these, these rhetorical approaches that we would take, they worked everywhere. They worked everywhere because they were fundamentally human. They worked in Asia, they worked in Africa, they worked in Australia when we came. Um, mm. so I didn't fundamentally, have to change the way we wrote based on where we went. But um, uh, yeah, I think, I think a lot of what we're talking about here applies 
to everyone everywhere all the time. So you travelled out to Australia in, I think it was like November 2011. Uh, Julia Gillard yeah. is the Prime Minister at that time. Uh, talk us through the process of crafting a speech for Obama. I think Obama spoke in the House of Representatives um, from That's memory. Right. Yeah, Parliament. Um, yeah, he made a speech in Parliament. And that was definitely... Uh, and then we came back uh, later in administration for, I think it was a G20 summit in... Was it... Was it Melbourne, maybe, that we did it? I can't remember. <laughs> but we came, to, we came twice. And, yep. uh, but, the, but the high point of that first trip was his speech, speech to Parliament. And, uh, yeah, that was very much uh, envisioned as sort of a major address, not only to, to one of our great allies, but to the region, uh, America's role in the Asia-Pacific for the years to come. And so that was very much one of these large sort of framing speeches that that shaped um, shaped his narrative and defined his narrative for, for years that followed. And actually, one of the one of the one of the best memories of that trip, though, is, is the night before uh, there was a dinner, you know, official dinner. And uh, we had teamed up with uh, Gillard's uh, speechwriters because uh, we wanted to make sure that we were all in sync with one another. And uh, I remember thinking uh, it'd be really cool. I'd, I'd read somewhere that that there was this growing concern in Australia that 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 Australian strine was sort of losing losing out to 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 a sort of American English, and and it was, Australia was at risk of losing something unique. And I said, well, what better way to pay tribute to a country and a culture than just to have them give the whole speech in strine? <laughs> <laughs> and so we worked with, uh, you know, I don't, you know, I can go online, but I don't, you know, don't trust anything online. And so we worked really closely with, with the prime minister's speechwriters uh, to try to craft a speech where, again, we're not doing it to be clever or funny, but as a sign of respect, as a, as a, as a tribute to a, to a nation's culture. And he gave, um, he gave most of that speech in, in words that, that were new to him and new to us, um, but I think one of his favorite phrases was ear bashing, and he he <laughs> that he learned during that that learned during that trip, and uh, he used that a lot when he got back home as well. Uh, I'm assuming the the speech was then just a whole bunch of uh, words that would are abbreviated from sunglasses to sunnies and afternoon to arvo, and yeah, I'd have to go back and look. You know, I, I had to, I did have to check a number of times. I, I sent, I, I think I sent the draft to the other speech. I said, you know, I. I I'm, I'm putting my faith in you here. I'm putting my job and my career in your hands. If this doesn't, if, if there's a double meaning to one of these words that I'm not getting and he's saying something else, uh, it's going to be my head on the chopping block. So, uh, uh, but it worked and it, it seemed like it was appreciated and I think he enjoyed it. And again, it was just one of these moments where, you know, it was fun in the moment and, and it kind of made headlines at the time. But I really do think that, that um, particularly people in the business community and people like yourself who do a lot of work internationally, um, really ought to be looking for more opportunities for these sort of cross-cultural moments. And it's, it's work. I get it. It's hard. It's easier just to get up and say hello. But if you take time to learn the culture, learn the language a little bit, you know, learn a few phrases, uh, try, you know, make an effort. It, you know, you might, you might not get it 100% right, but people really appreciate it. And it's a real example of how using rhetoric and language to, to kind of you know, bridge cultures and bridge divides, you know, it really makes a difference to people. And I think we'd mm -hmm. be in a, in a much kind of different world if more people tried to do that. 
So that's one of the reasons I loved working on the, the foreign policy side, because every time he went, every time he went overseas, every time he traveled, there was an opportunity to, to, to build these bridges and try to overcome these cultural divides. And, and he was uniquely positioned to do it, given, given who he was and his, his background and his biography. Out of all of the um, overseas trips that you took with the president, which one was the most stressful or one that you, uh, in terms of your own work that you thought, I really need to nail this because there's a lot riding on this speech? Mm. Yeah. Um, the most stressful. That's, I've never been asked that question before. <laughs> I literally just they made it up then as well. Stressful. They were all stressful. Every single one. <laughs> Every single one was stressful because when you're writing for a president of the United States, particularly overseas, you're writing for, you know, all sorts of different audiences at once. You know, there's the country you're in, the, the, there's the political situation, the military situation, the cultural situation. You know, there's so many ways that you can step in it. It's just an absolute minefield. Um, and then folks are watching back home. So, and, you know, liberals and conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, uh, and everyone's perceiving it through their own lens. Um, you know, they were, they were, I, 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 was a bit of a cop out. I just, they were, every single one of them was stressful. Um, it was, you know, we would, we would start right working on these speeches for the overseas trips, you know, take, take our trip to Australia, for instance, you know, we knew we had a two day flight, uh, to work on things, but we would try to get the first day or two's worth of speeches done before we ever took off. And so every, every day, uh, you're working on the next leg of the trip. And so even though you're physically, you know, you're physically in Canberra, uh, mentally you're in Darwin cause that's where we're going next, uh, yeah. for a big event with the troops. But, um, yeah, they were, they were all, they were all nerve wracking and it never, people think, Oh, it must've got, it never, at least for me, it never got easy. It never got less stressful. I was just as stressed out <laughs> on the trips at the end as I was at the beginning. Um, you know, there was a more confident as time went on that I could do it and, and, and get it right. But again, you're still, you're just dealing at, at such a high level and no, there's just almost no margin for error. Any, any mistake, any word, you know, a single word that's wrong can spark an international crisis. And you just, you just don't want to be the person that does that. You spoke about this particular speech um, at the the dinner that we had on the Tuesday night. So I'm going to re-ask this question that was asked by one of the delegates, uh, which is what was the most meaningful speech that you wrote? Mm. So actually at the end of the administration, all the speechwriters were asked that question and uh, your listeners can go online and, and I think it's on Medium. It's something like, you know, Obama's speechwriters share their favorite speeches or best speeches, something like that. And what strike, I think what's striking about that is they're not necessarily speeches that anyone, they're not the speeches that people uh, think of as Obama's greatest speeches. But when people ask us, they're all speeches that meant something to us on a very personal level. And so for me, having grown up in Massachusetts, the, the, the one speech that meant the most to me was being able to help with Obama's uh, remarks at the memorial service after the Boston Marathon bombing. And so for me, it was a chance to try to help my home state get through a really difficult moment. Uh, it occurred in streets that I knew and places that I knew, people I uh, knew had been affected by it. And, you know, I, I, as I drafted, as I worked on it, I imagined writing it for members of my own family. I imagined writing it for people I knew. And so that's the one that, 
that for me on a personal level means the most. And one of the things I'm most proud of in what Obama did was, you know, if you people remember, he gave this, the bombing was on a Monday. The, the service was on a Thursday, which was remarkable three days later. And the, and the, the bombers were still on the loose. The city was still in like lockdown. There was a massive manhunt underway and he, he sort of arrives in the middle of this. And uh, we, you know, no one knew exactly who did it yet, but there was already, you know, all sorts of finger pointing. And there was a concern that, you know, certain communities uh, would be targeted and he went out of his way in that speech to talk about um, what it means to be strong and, and resilient in the face of terror and fear and how we can't demonize people and, um, you know, wh- how, a, how a really, how a strong and confident nation responds to moments like that, as opposed to, you know, what we saw, say, from his successor. So um, mm. that, that's a speech that I still I'm very proud that I was a part of, and uh, you know, as always, Obama made it <laughs> made it much better with his edits. He made it better at the podium, um, but to have been a part of that was was pretty special. How much uh, editing? What you, what is, what's the editing process like when you're working with the president on on a speech for, like the one that he delivered in Boston after the after the mm-hmm. bombing? So for something like that, you know, the, the draft will go up to him the night before, you know, a present, he, he gets his homework every night, just like our students do and kids do, you know, he takes a big, big batch of folders. And, um, for that speech, I remember, uh, the next morning, the, that Thursday morning we came in and, and he had all sorts of edits. I mean, I think the structurally, the draft that I had worked on was still there, but just every paragraph had edits, uh, line edits, uh, moving things around, you know, he, he was very precise in his edits, um, and uh, they were so extensive that I figured, well, I'm going to make these edits, and that'll kind of be done. We'll essentially be there. I mean, we also didn't have a whole lot of time, but so flying up to Boston on Air Force One, uh, making the edits, sending them back up, I pretty much figured we were done. Maybe I'd get a few little edits, but you know, he walked back at one point. The, the plane is getting ready to <laughs> getting ready to land in Boston. He kind of strolls back casually, hands me another round of, and it's a whole nother extensive round of edits. I mean, he's really, really getting into it. Again, not, not necessarily uh, restructuring the speech, although he would do that at times. Uh, this case, he was just really, uh, really precise in his language and really wanted to make sure that he struck the right chord uh, at a, a really difficult moment for that city and for the country. And there were, there were so many edits that actually, unfortunately decided I, 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 you know, I love being in the room when the speeches that I worked on are given because I want to see, want to see how it goes. I want to see the audience react. I want to see whether whether that experience that we had worked to create actually happens. But I was so terrified of being, you know, stuck in some staff van somewhere with no internet and not able to make the edits. I just stayed on the, I just stayed on Air Force One at the airport. Everybody else left. The motorcade left. Went to the event, and I was by myself and and making those final edits and. Um, yeah, he just, he cared. And again, I think back to that speech, his edits were, uh, again, not structural, but he just really, really, again, as a writer himself, really focused on, I think one, one there was one particular edit um, where he was describing the race and um, he made the line much more alliterative. You know, he was, he talked about the race being this sort of 26 mile marathon of, friendship uh and he added fellowships you know just this little touch of a just as friendship and fellowship you know all the fellowship has a much there's more there's there's more going on in that word than mm. than friendship um so lots of little things like that throughout the whole speech so that by the 
you know, by the time it gets to the podium, you know, he's, he's touched just about every single line in a speech like that and really, really made it his own, you know. Um, listening to this, uh, I remember the, the speech being given. Um, I had been in Boston a couple of weeks before the marathon and obviously the, the city started to prepare for the marathon. The blue and yellow Boston Athletic Association gear is starting to sort of appear on people as they're running around the city. And, um, and I hadn't, I'd been to Boston on a number of occasions prior to that, but I hadn't realised how important the marathon was in the landscape of the, uh, of the city itself. Yeah. Um, and so I'm listening to the speech and I'm getting emotional about it. Um, and I'm not even from Boston. I mean, you know, we're lucky we haven't turned this podcast into a Boston sports podcast because all of my <laughs> favourite sports teams are all the teams from New England. And I'm trying so hard right now not to ask you about the Red Sox. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, but I was getting emotional. So you're sitting there in the Air Force One listening to this speech, a native New Englander. How are you feeling about listening to this as he's delivering, you know, your, you know, a, a unison of both his and your words? Yeah, well, you know, um, it's it's always hard when you're someone who's you've worked on it, you've been working on it for days or weeks, and you've kind of agonized over every word, every line, and, you know, it was, I think for me, the most important part of it was, you know, there's a moment in the speech where about halfway through, you know, again, this isn't, he's in a cathedral. It's a, it's a religious setting. It's an interfaith service. There's 2000 people in the, in the church, you know, so it's, of course, it's, it's a memorial, it's a service and it, and it, the first half of it feels that way. But then there's this moment about halfway through where, uh, you know, it pivots and there's a line, something to the effect of, um, you know, if the people who did this thought they could scare us, if they thought they could intimidate us, well, they picked the wrong city. And at that moment, it went from being more of a service to more of the sort of defiant rally. And mm-hmm. at that moment, I remember, you know, again, I'm watching on TV on Air Force One, people standing up, kind of putting their fists in the air. And so it changed. Uh, you, you could, I wasn't in the room. I wish I had been, but you could see the mood in the room change. And so from that point on, it becomes this speech of real kind of uh, defiance and resilience and pride. And that, you know, we're not going to let these people, whoever did this change who we are, we're not going to can't, we're, we're going to come back here next year. We're going to run this race again. And so, um, that's a great example to me of how, you know, a speech can, can do something, right? It, it, it empowered people at that moment. It, it took this moment of profound grief and turned it into one of resolve and defiance and pride. Um, and he did that. That was his delivery through which he did that. Um, but that, and I, and I, so to be able to watch that as, as someone who was born in Boston and grew up in Massachusetts and, and spent so much time there, uh, that to me was, was um, my big takeaway, and the, why that's mm. one of the reasons why that meant so much to me is that this this horrific, horrific thing of so much pain and tragedy could still become something that would bring people together in a positive way, not to not not out of anger towards another group, not out of uh, fear of another group uh, of the other, which which so many leaders throughout history have done. Like the, the only way to bring people together is to have a common enemy. There was no common enemy in that speech. It was just a common 
so you know there was a solidarity in who we are and what we represent and the values that define us as a city and as a country and so um i wish more leaders would do that you know it's 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 cheap and it's easy to point a finger and, and blame entire communities uh, or people who look different or pray different than you but if you can find a way as a leader to actually you know bring people together and get people to stand up and you know put their fist in the air uh not to not because they want to punch somebody but because they want to you know be strong in who they are and confident um so that, that's there's there's a lot going on but that's there's that moment in the speech about halfway through where you can where you can see that kind of turn in, in his mood and and then and in the in the audience's mood and I assume you never wrote David Ortiz's speech that he gave at Fenway Park. Uh. (laughs) Right. Right. And that, that, that was, that's right. That was that spirit that, that, you know, he had his own way of saying it in a much, uh, much more colorful way uh, that the president couldn't, but that was, that was Obama's way of saying something similar. Um, But it was, yeah, I was trying to channel, channel that spirit. Um, And I think that's one of the things that, that really, you know, all of us can do, all great speakers do is, is you know they channel they reflect back and channel the energy and mood of 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 the room of the town of the, whatever it is whoever the country um, and and in not they don't always get it right and you know Obama is the first to tell you, he didn't always get it right um, there were times where he kind of you know particularly after of terrorist attacks sometimes where he um, he viewed it as his role to as president commander in chief to stay calm to project calm. Um, and meanwhile, you have sort of right-wing television programs not staying calm and ginning, uh, you know, fanning the fears and fanning the flames. Um, so it, it can be, it can be a hard thing to do for a speaker to channel and reflect back the mood of your audience. But I think that's, that's the Boston speech is an example. One, ex- one example of many where he was able to do that in his way. Do you know which speech the president uh, uh, is is one of his favourites? You know, I've, I've, I'd love to ask him that someday. Um, I do know that early in his career, very early in his career, he told several people that his favourite speech was the speech he gave um, as a... Illinois state senator uh, on the eve of the Iraq war, I think it was October 2002, where many Democrats sort of afraid to speak out or, or sort of following along uh, the march to war. And he stood up and, and, said, uh, and said that he opposed it. And I, I know that he's, so one of them is definitely going to be that. And it, it, one of the things that he was most proud of was that you know, he, he, he did what, what all great speakers ought to be doing was he said what he believed. Mm-hmm. He, he said what he believed to be true. And he was willing to say it at a time when, when a lot of other leaders in his party were not. And, uh, in the end it ended up being politically the right thing to do, but, but it, at the time that wasn't clear. And so I think, you know, particularly politicians, there's, you know, there's so much polling, there's so much putting your finger to the wind and, you know, voters see, voters see that and they know who's, who's telling them what they want to hear. And they, and they know that's the difference between a leader who tells them what they want to hear and what they need to hear. And so in that particular moment, um, that was something that he stood up and he, you know, he spoke, he spoke his heart. But as far as probably a great question for him. 
Do you recall the first time you ever walked into the Oval Office? You would think I would. Uh, I actually don't. <laughs> uh, but I do remember the first time I met him. Um, uh, and we were, it was, it was uh, May 2009. I had just written my first speech for him. We were, speechwriters would have a daily meeting with his uh, chief strategist, David Axelrod, whose office was right next door to the Oval Office. And uh, Axe, Axe, being an old newspaper man, would uh, have us uh, print out our print out our speeches, uh, walk in, and one by one we'd hand him our speech, and he'd sit there, lean back in his chair, and read them quietly. It was agonizing. I, I couldn't. It was, you know, it's how he how he did it. But we and we were in there, and Obama walked in and and uh, asked who asked where the new guy was because it was the first speech I'd written for him, and uh, said that he had, he liked the speech, which which was you know kept me uh, kept me going for a few years after that and uh, that was the first time I met him um, and you know you never you never forget you never forget that point uh, but yeah all the the oval office means that kind of blur together to be honest with you um, and when, and also too you know when you're in the oval office when as speech writers when we're in the oval office we're there because it was our opportunity to hear what was on his mind what he wanted to do with the next speeches over the coming weeks and so you know, we didn't record these conversations. We had to take notes. So our, we had one job and one job alone, and that was to listen to him mm-hmm. <laughs> and not to look around the room, not to like, you know, step out of your body for a minute and, and kind of pinch yourself that you're in the Oval Office. Because God help you, you know, here he is taking time out of his busy day to to tell you what's on his mind and what he wants to get done and achieve in the speech that you're working on. You better not miss a word. You better not miss an idea. So, mm-hmm. uh, those are some pretty intense, uh, intense experiences, but it's a, it's a much smaller room than, than people think it's, it's, uh, we were very fortunate that when, when it was time for him to talk about a speech, you know, he didn't bring in 20, 30 advisors and, you know, he'd bring in, you know, a few speech writers, one or two advisors, and it would be a real intimate setting and a real chance for him to just, just speak honestly about what he is, uh, what he was trying to achieve in that speech. Uh, I couldn't imagine uh, walking to that room. I don't know what, just the aura and the mystique of that, of that, uh, it's probably the, the most famous uh, 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 office room uh, for, for a worker in the yeah, world. And it, it's, it's right. It's amazing, but it's, it's a, it's a work room too, right? You know, you're yeah. there to do a job and uh, you know, his first question would usually be, hey, what are we working on? Or, you know, mm-hmm. what do you want to talk about? And uh, sometimes he had been thinking about the speech already and, you know, it was frightening. He would, he might have a whole kind of outline in his head already, you know, what the key points he wanted to make or other times it was, it was sort of the key idea of the speech or the headline, the key headline he wanted out of it. Um, but, but yeah, you're there, you're sitting on the couch, um, and he's kind of riffing and, and yeah, you just better, you just better listen and take really good notes. (laughs) Well, I think that shits me certainly from a campaign perspective is when I when a when a politician gets up and gives a speech in front of a bunch of volunteers, and there's no ask. I hate that because I'm an right. organizer. We need to, they've got all these people in the room. They're here to listen to you, but we need to do something. We need to go knock on doors or make calls or right. something. You know. Well, that's the thing. That's when I always tell people is is so uh, there's no point in giving a speech unless you're going to ask somebody to do something because otherwise you can send an email, you can write a letter. Uh, but why are you choosing to stand up in front of a room of people and take their time and your time um, and, you know, ear bash them, right? Uh, mm. 
you you better be asking them for something. And it doesn't, you know, from an organizing standpoint, yes, it's it's volunteer, it's donate, it's give your time, give your money, um, talk to your friends, talk to your family. Not not every single speech has something like that, but the ask can also be a challenge to people to think differently about an issue or or a situation or to, um, you know, approach the world differently. Uh, you know, we, we, especially at the end, after Trump was elected, you know, we had several months where obviously Obama had committed himself to a peaceful, orderly, smooth transition of power, which who, who, whoever thought that was going to be um, uh, <laughs> such an, an I would say anomaly, but whoever thought that would ever be up for question. But even then, you know, he wasn't going to he wasn't going to attack his successor. But he did in all the speeches in those final months. You know, whether it's his fi- farewell address in Chicago or his final big speech overseas in Athens, the birthplace of democracy, where he was asking people, particularly young people, to not lose hope, to not give mm-hmm. up, to not you know g- give up in the face of this of this um, you know zigzag of democracy. And that was an ask, you know, uh, because it's easy to give in to cynicism and despair in moments like that. Uh, and so just to to not give in to, and not to give up hope that that was the ask. Um, so there's all different ways that you can you can you can ask your audience to do something to, to, to be a new think a new act a new in some way. If and if you don't have it, then, then I don't know what there's no point in giving a speech. And uh, I always look for that. If, if, and usually if it's not there, it's because the person hasn't really thought deeply about what it is, you know, why they're giving the speech and what they're trying to achieve. Because if they knew it, they clearly had a, if they had a clear goal, they would know the role their audience will, can play in that. So, it, but yeah, just, all right, folks, let's go out there and win this. That, that's a little vague. You can't, you know. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, to me, it's one of the, like, it's, it's not the words. I mean, the words are fine, but the words have to be in service of some deed. And if, if you're not, then you're missing a tremendous opportunity because we know that, you know, again, write a letter, (laughs) send an email, but you have an incredible opportunity as a kind of a living, breathing human being standing in front of other living, breathing human beings to forge a real deep human connection. And, and if you can couple that with an ask, um, you know, you can, yeah, you can change the world. You can change your community. And on that positive, hopeful note, Terry, thank you so much for your time uh, on the show today. And also on behalf of uh, the Dunn Street US Engagement Mission, uh, thank you for your time uh, during the week in DC. It was wonderful for us to catch up and uh, hear your thoughts uh, over a lovely meal. Um, and uh, we wish you the best of success with uh, with your business and uh, continue to write great stories and narratives for people in, in the work that they do in public leadership. I appreciate it. Really appreciate that. It was a great conversation. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Hey there. Thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. 
Maurice Blackburn lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, maurisblackburn.com.au. Maurice Blackburn, experience you can count on.